Welcome to the People's Historians podcast with the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. I'm Jesse Hagopian, a co-editor of Rethinking Schools and host of this series on Teach the Black Freedom Struggle. In this episode, I'm speaking with career foreign correspondent and global affairs writer Howard W. French about his 2021 book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. With so much history to cover, let's jump right in. Howard, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's great to be with you and with all of you. And thank you to the uh, interpreter as well. No doubt. No doubt. Well, I'm just so glad you wrote this book. I learned so much and greatly enjoyed your prose and your ideas and just sparked so many ideas for me about how I want to use this in my my classroom. And I think it will for many educators with us today as well. You know, most of us learned in school that modernity was the project and product of European exploration and that Africa was a barrier to this exploration, an obstacle to the trade routes that they sought to establish with Asia. I think back to the great historian Arturo Schomburg when he was in grade school and asked his teacher if they could learn about African history and the teacher replied by saying that black people had no history, right? Something that you hear echoing in the words of Ron DeSantis today. But I was hoping you could talk about the major Eurocentric master narratives that students often learn about Africa and the truth really about the sophisticated societies of Africa that Europeans encountered in the 1400s, including Mansa Musa's legendary city of of Timbuktu and Mali and 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 so much more. So take it away. Well, there's a, a, an awful lot to unpack in there and already I'm worried about 25 minutes before <laughs> the breakout room. Um, but um, uh, I guess I'll start where you started and that is this notion of how the age of exploration began. And my book uh, starts there uh, as well. And uh, it starts there for a very deliberate reason. I Actually, the f- very first sentence of the book says you can't a story can't, a history can't end up in the right place if it doesn't begin in the right place. And so the age of the age of exploration, in the way that it is almost always taught, begins uh, in our curricula and in most of our history books with this idea that Iberians and most particularly Portuguese in the 15th century were um, uh, sort of uh, uh, um, hell bound to get to Asia by sea. Uh, and as you said uh, in your own phrasing, uh, Africa was seen really as an obstacle to that. The, the challenge that Africa presented was its size and the difficulties it presented in circumnavigating it. The Europeans literally didn't know if Africa could be circumnavigated. They didn't have a, a, a very good um, uh, understanding of the global oceans yet. Um, and so that this was a big mystery. Can you can we even get around Africa? What what you know? Um, and so Africa was was standing there as a as a problem. And this is Africa is presented in the beginning of the way this history is told, either in two ways as a problem or via its absence. Uh, and so this is the binary in the way te- the teaching of this era is done. Sometimes Africa to get just to save time, so to speak, Africa is not mentioned at all. Um, other times it's presented as a problem and we have these ingenious navigators who are trying to figure out how to how to overcome the problem right so that they can get to asia by sea the reality is and i'll try to do this really quickly that more than 150 years before columbus crossed the atlantic um, uh, there was uh, an empire in the sudan uh, the sahelian region of west africa just beneath the sahara called mali and that a succession of emperors of that empire were themselves obsessed with ocean navigation and with discovery and with figuring out what lies on the other side of the great sea 
that is off of their coast. I'm calling it the Great Sea. We know that sea is the Atlantic, of course, right? Uh, they were not trying to get to Asia. They didn't have Asia in mind, but Mali was a gold superpower of that age. Most of the gold that entered into Europe transited North African kingdoms uh, into Europe, uh, mostly Italy, uh, but also in Spain and Portugal. Uh, and so the Europeans wanted to figure out where the gold was coming from. And the spark that drove their curiosity much more than anything else, and the spark that I believe and argue uh, is sort of um, uh, the starting point, the, 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 the ignition point of the age of ex exploration is the um, pilgrimage that this emperor Mansa Musa, who you mentioned, made to um, uh, Cairo and to Mecca in 1326 and 1327, in which he carried with him uh, 18 tons of pure gold uh, in gold bullion and in gold uh, bars. And Mansa Musa distributed in, in patronage um, throughout uh, his route, and especially in Cairo, all of that gold. In fact, he gave away all 18 tons of it. And the impact, monetary impact, economic impact, of this act of largesse of Mansa Musa's was to depress the price of gold in in what were for Europeans understood to be the world markets for gold. So the price of gold collapses virtually. Silver becomes worth much more than gold, which is up, usually the opposite in terms of their ratios. Um, and the Europeans then spend a, a succession of decades, and the Portuguese take the lead in this, in trying to figure out, so they knew the gold came from Africa, but they didn't have a sense of where in Africa that it was always transiting through the hands of the Berbers in North Africa. The Portuguese wanted to overcome the middlemen of the Berbers and figure out where the gold came from. By the way, this is a this is a kind of a there's an interesting symmetry going on here. Uh, Mansa Musa's predecessor, who made who launched two attempts to cross the Atlantic Ocean in the 1310s, uh, was also trying to overcome the middlemen. He was not trying to sell gold to the Europeans. He was sick of selling gold, having the North Africans take a big cut in the gold, and so therefore wondered, can we find societies on the other side of the ocean that would also like to be gold? Gold, everyone basically understood, is the most universal store of value that humans know. And so it was a very reasonable proposition or supposition that he had that if we can just cross the water, there must be land somewhere on the other side. If we find societies there that want to trade, we can use our gold superpower with them and not suffer the cut that you take via middlemen, right? Um, right, right. Europeans had no time in the way, and Americans, in, in, in the way we have much subsequently, much later told this history. But the fact is, the fact that I discovered in the research of this book, and in fact, the, the thing that set me on the course that led to me writing this book was a discovery in the archives working on a book about China, uh, reading into European contacts with China in the 16th century and discovering, you know, when you if, you, if, if you're a curious researcher, you always discover things that you were not looking for. And so I'm looking into stuff in the 16th century and I find accounts of the Portuguese in the 15th century, where they're not trying to get to Asia at all, they're writing contemporaneously. It's, it's crystal clear, our obsession is with Africa. We are spending decades trying to understand Africa, trying to come to terms with what we're finding in Africa, and most of all, trying to trade with Africa, trade for gold for most of this time span, and then eventually, uh, but only toward the end of the time span we're talking about, meaning from the early mid 1400s until the lighter, la last years of that century. It's only then that a, 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 a traffic in human beings begins to take place, and even then, still on a pretty small scale, right? right. Um, so the Europeans tell this story as that cutting the Africa piece of it out, uh, and and that's unfortunate for a number of reasons, not just because it takes credit away from Africa for having been the spark of the age of, of, of exploration, but also because the processes that led to slavery and which ultimately flowed from this are the very economic processes that made Europe rich, that drove Europe's economic diverging, divergence in wealth 
from China and India and other parts of the world and, and enabled Europeans to so-called settle the Western Hemisphere, the Americas, and to make their settlement of the Americas economically viable and ultimately extraordinarily profitable. All of that stuff flowed from Africa. And so when you're cutting Africa out of the story, ultimately you're not just cutting the proper beginning out of the story, but you're cutting the end of the story out of the story too. You're making you're 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 making it seem like Africa was not just inconsequential because it was just an inert barrier uh, for, for a, a faraway ob objective like reaching Asia, but Af Africa really wasn't of any economic consequence for Europeans or subsequently for the West, when in fact, Africa was everything economically for the West. No, that's that's so right. That's so so powerful. That's the world history education I wish that I had. And I know that uh, so many of us are going to use your framework to help redesign our world history courses, our Africa history courses, our American history courses. And I just love the way you flip the script and show that modernity is a product of African uh, ingenuity and exploration from Mansa Musa's Hajj to Abubakar's exploration of the Atlantic. Uh, and these are just left out of too many conversations. So thank you for putting them back in. And you start your book in 1471, when the Portuguese crown established Europe's first overseas outpost in the trop tropics of Elamina in present day Ghana. So I was hoping you could tell us more about Elamina and about how Portugal became the first European nation to establish that outpost in West Africa. Sure. Um, so this was all the result of um, a multi-decade obsession uh, um, that was forged in the mind of a um, member of the Portuguese ruling family, a prince, a, not a crown prince. A crown prince means somebody who's going to become king. But this man because he was the third son of the king, he knew he was not going to become king. And so they had to give him something to do. Uh, and so they put him in charge of a, a, a branch of the Roman Catholic Church in, in, in um, the Order of Christ, it was called in Portugal. And they also eventually gave him the, the task of leading exploration, right? And so this person, who we know as Henry the Navigator, um, uh, becomes completely taken with this idea of connecting with Africa. And so he starts in the 1430s and he pursues in the pursuit of the source of gold that he believes is flowing from Mali. Uh, and with the limitations of European technology in this era and sailing methods and the nature of European ships in this era and understanding of geography in this era, this is, this is a very arduous task. They could only sail some years. They could only advance one or 200 miles down the coast further than their last furthest point of exploration. And so the, this begins in the 1430s. Um, by the 1460s, uh, I, I, pardon me, I can't remember the exact year, I think 1467 perhaps, uh, Henry the Navigator finally dies. Um, but um, uh, they, the Portuguese didn't give up. And it's interesting to understand why they didn't abandon this mission. All along that way, from the 1430s to the 1460s, they had not found huge amounts of gold yet. They knew there were huge amounts of gold, but they hadn't found it. So why did they continue? Or another way of asking this to be just deliberately provocative, why didn't they just give up on Africa and try to get to Asia, which is what we've been taught anyway, right? Uh, which they obviously didn't, they definitely didn't do, right? Um, so they didn't give up because... Um, uh, the Ottomans had taken over, Ottomans being a Muslim empire, uh, had taken over uh, the western reaches of the Silk Road. The Ottomans owned uh, a control of what is now Turkey and what is now Egypt and what are now Syria and many other parts of what we sometimes call the Middle East, right? And so those the, the, these modern-day country names that I've given you are places that sit aside the kind of western terminus of the Silk Road. And the Silk Road was, trade along the Silk Road was, had long been one of the most reliable and lucrative sources of commercial wealth for Southern Europeans. 
the Spanish had a window onto the Mediterranean, the Italians had a window onto the Mediterranean, the Greeks had a window onto the Mediterranean. But the Portuguese, if you look at the Iberian Peninsula, the Portuguese have just the western shoulder of Iberia. None of their territory sits on the on the Mediterranean. And so when the Portuguese were completely cut out of that circuit of trade, and so they had a very special motive uh, at, beyond uh, what drove Spanish exploration or Italian exploration to try to find alternative sources of wealth once the Silk Road um, uh, circuit uh, began to uh, dry up for, for, for Southern Europe, right? Uh, and so this pushed the Portuguese out into the sea looking for other uh, places they could trade with, and particularly with this central obsession of connecting with Africa, right? Um, so Henry the Navigator dies in 14, I think, 1467. Don't quote me on that, um, but it's definitely in the 1460s. Uh, and um, uh, the um, Aviz dynasty, of which he was a member, pursued this goal until 1471. Poor guy, he he died a little bit before they found gold. They didn't find the Malian gold initially. They found uh, a similarly immense quantities of gold in what is present-day Ghana. They named the place where they um, anchored their boats El Mina, which means in Portuguese, the mine. Uh, and they knew that they had discovered gold there uh, because uh, when they came ashore at this place, which is a beautiful sheltered bay that is sort of a crescent and and there's no rough waves there. And so it was a safe place for, they didn't know there was going to be gold there. They were coming ashore to get water and food and stuff like that. And they see ordinary people, everybody has gold jewelry, lots of gold jewelry. And they said, oh no, this, this, that, this, this surely must be significant. And it didn't take very long for them to scratch around enough to understand that in fact, there was a very large uh, trade in gold uh, available there. Um, I describe this in great detail in my book, but I don't, I, I can't really give you the long version of this, but uh, long story short, they end up negotiating with the local king of a modest kingdom that controlled the area right around that bay, and they obtained his permission to build a fort, and this was the first fortified structure that Europeans ever built anywhere in the world outside of Europe, um, and it stands up until this moment, There's a there are photographs of it in the book, uh, it is enormous. Uh, and the fact that it was built to such a high standard of robustness uh, and permanence tells you how important this was for the Portuguese, right? Uh, I've been there many times. I went there for this book, but I had been there for the first time as a, as quite a, quite a young man. Um, the place is, you know, it was built to, to, to um, stand the test of time, and it has done that. And the reason for that is because the Portuguese had obtained, uh, were it, within the space of three years of trading with this relatively small kingdom that controlled just that immediate local area, the Portuguese had earned enough income so that Elmina itself constituted one third of the total national treasury for the P Portuguese crown, right? The, this was such a, uh, a boon for the Portuguese, for the Aviz dynasty, that they named their national treasury the House of Africa. The literal phrase was, this is the House of Guinea. Guinea was their word for Africa, for Black Africa. They named their treasury the House of Black Africa, right? Um, this is in the 1670s. Um, nobody's rushing on to, to, to Asia yet. Um, the Spanish, you know, this, the the the... Portuguese and the Spanish being so closely related linguistically and historically speaking, the Spanish get wind of this very quickly. Spain's a much larger, 10 times bigger than Portugal. The Spanish sent their navy down the coast of West Africa, determined to seize this place away from the Portuguese. But again, the Portuguese and the Spanish having been um, such deep connections, the Portuguese had intelligence about the Spanish in intentions, and they ambushed the Spanish fleet and, and sunk most of the ships. And it is that point, it is at that point that the Portuguese decided to build this fort, which stands today, uh, and which totally revolutionized uh, world history. And let me just, you didn't ask me this question, but I think this is really important to explain. So up until that point, Portugal had been among the most marginal players of nations uh, in, uh, that still exist today that you can list in Western Europe. It was 
extremely poor. It was a recent creation. The Avis dynasty had broken off from uh, well, I'll, what I'll call proto-Spain, meaning the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon, uh, and had declared its independence from them. But it had almost no means of its own. Um, it was almost reckless for them to go to war with the Spanish. They were so poor. All they had was um, cork and salt and dried fish as tri trade items. Within three years, one third of their total, and it would increase beyond this, but one third of their total trade now is from Elmina, this one place on the coast of West Africa. And this is what gave the Portuguese the wherewithal now to begin building ships that created all of the subsequent history of, with which we are large. All of you will be familiar and even your students will be largely familiar with the discovery of the Americas, the Portuguese discovery of Brazil, um, the much subsequent voyages into Asia. All of the money that was needed to launch those efforts came out of these connections with Elmina. This is the motor of all of this history. Um, uh, and I'll just say uh, finally, with regard to Columbus, because I think this is um, this is uh, a particularly opportune thing to teach every high school student. By high school, you've learned about Columbus, right? Everybody's going to learn something about Columbus, right? Um, Columbus got um, the support of the Catholic rulers. They were called Los Reyes Católicos in Spanish, the Isabel and Ferdinand. He, he got his funding to launch his three ships with 85 men to try to prove that there was land on the other side of the Atlantic because the Portuguese had found gold in Elmina. That's the reason the Spanish funded him. We never learned that. Um, Christopher Columbus had been laughed out of one royal court after another. They told him this idea of yours sounds very eccentric, like the world is round, and if we only go west, we'll hit Japan, and right after Japan, there's China, and you know we can establish trade for tea and silk and all of these wonderful things, and happily ever after, right? Columbus went all over the place trying to get people to, to fund him to try to prove this concept, and he had been serially refused by one court after another, after another, after another. When the Portuguese discover gold in Almina, the Spanish decided to fund Columbus's first voyage, which is for most people the starting point of the modern age, right? Um, and they did so because they had a theory, a kind of a geological theory that said, if the Portuguese have discovered gold in the tropics, that must be mean that the tropics is where gold is distributed in the world. And so we're not really sure about all this other stuff that Christopher Columbus is talking about. Like you'll get to Japan and you know, you know, the earth is round. Like maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But that's not really what interests us. Our interest is making sure that the Portuguese don't get all the gold in the world because they're in the tropics in West Africa and we are not. So let's fund this guy, Christopher Columbus, and see what happens. And what you very quickly see, if you read Columbus's diaries, Literally every day on his first voyage, he notes what he has found about the presence of gold. He knew what his marching orders were. His marching orders from his patrons was, go off and see if you can match the Portuguese. And so, I've read that diary. It's incredible. <laughs> so even Columbus's discoveries flow not indirectly, but directly from Elmina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much it's incredible to to see how much it is the wealth of africa that that uh is the generator of uh european exploration we have a whole campaign at the zen education project around abolishing columbus day uh, and replacing it with Indigenous Peoples Day and teaching the the truth about Indigenous Peoples. So that all fits really well uh, for a lot of the work that we've been doing. Um, and as well, we've been working on these laws that are placing educational gag orders on, on teachers about racism. And, and those who are passing those laws trying to stop teachers from teaching about systemic racism, often claim that 
Teaching the true history of slavery means teaching that Africans enslaved each other before Europeans and that the U.S. and Europe were the people that ended slavery. Uh, and so I think that it's important that we understand that history better and uh, teach it better. So I was hoping you could explain what's what's wrong with this narrative and describe the toll of European enslavement on Africa. Wow, that's a big question. Um, so, uh, first of all, I, I, there's uh, there's like six different things I want to come at here. Um, first of all, I I, I want to speak to Asia first, like, and but this gets to the whole political movement that you're asking me about. It's not to it doesn't besmirch any part of the world to try to capture the truth of what was really going on with regard to that geography or with regard to human contacts between another part of the world and the part of the world you're talking about. I have said to you today and in my book that Asia was not the driver of this history. That doesn't mean Asia doesn't have a great history or that, you know, the, the eventual connection that Europeans made with Asia was not also important in many ways. It really was, right? This isn't your problem. But I think this helps illustrate the problem with this kind of blinkered political thinking about if you say this about one place, that means you're sort of taking something away from them or being unfair to them or, or, or you know, revising things in a politically correct way. Correct is right. Politically correct is wrong. Right. <clears throat> so. With regard to slavery, slavery has existed as best we know. In every part of the world from time immemorial, right? That's just point one. Let's just start there. Um, there was slavery among white, indisputably white people in Europe, simultaneous with the early parts of the transatlantic slave trade, okay? Um, and so slavery is a thing that human beings have been doing to each other for a very long time. Now, slavery is also a very complicated and highly varied institution. Its characteristics have been different in different places and in different times. Okay, this is not going to be a lecture about all of the many variants of enslavement. Okay, it's important for your question to ask, and this is something that the people who who, who like to emphasize well. Well, didn't Africans enslave each other too as a way of sort of wiping this, brushing this to the side or minimizing the importance of what, what this meant to our history and to millions of people? Um, what was different about African slavery at the hands of Europeans is that African slavery represented a form of bestialization. Uh, the common word used to capture that is chattel. Chattel comes from the Latin word cattle. Africans under European control in the transatlantic slave trade were being um, reduced or being uh, deprived of their humanity. The, um, the famous sociologist Orlando Patterson said they, they ceased from the moment of enslavement in chattel arrangements they lost their, they, they ceased being social beings. What does that mean, they ceased being social beings? That meant that their social relations were no longer recognized by their owners. What does this mean? This means that a husband doesn't have a wife, that there's no record for a wife, a husband. Owner doesn't care about any of that. The only relationship is I own you and I own her. You don't have anything to say about that, right? I'm the owner. You are my cattle. Um, when um, you are being deprived of your social existence, it means if I'm a mother or a father and I have a child under enslavement, my enslavers have no uh, duty to recognize my paternal or maternal relationship with my offspring. I don't have any rights of parentage over my offspring. Those people are like fold cattle. They came out of the cow 
and and now they're just going to be fattened enough until they can produce milk or or be eaten as beef. It's reducing people to the state of animals. Okay, that was chattel slavery, and it was for the very specific purpose of being put to work in plantation agriculture, which was a new economic institution that was born, I argue, in uh, on a tiny island uh, off the coast of Central Africa called Sao Tome in the 1480s. Um, the Europeans worked out for the purpose of producing sugar from sugarcane in commercial quantities, how to organize large numbers of chattel, meaning enslaved Africans, in enclosed settings under regimental work um, orders, right? Yep. Uh, and with the very explicit notion that they would be worked to death, that there was no value placed on the preservation or the prolonging of their life. They were just like tools that were expected to be worn out after a certain period of time. And as an ordinary cost of doing business, they would be replaced once that happened. And so how to keep a plantation going was in part from the perspective of the enslaver, understanding supply. I have to keep supplying, resupplying myself in cattle. We say chattel, but keep replying, resupplying myself in chattel so that I can keep my production up. These were entirely new arrangements in human history. These sorts of arrangements have never happened or existed anywhere else on anything like the scale that we're talking about. And they have also never existed anywhere in human history on the, on the sole and exclusive basis of race. This is another totally novel feature of this time. So Africans had slaves. Yes, they did. Slaves existed in China. Yes, they did. There are slaves among Native Americans before white people arrived. Yes, there were. There are slaves among Aborigines. Yes, there were. There have been slaves here. There have been slaves there. Russians had slaves. Swedish people had slaves. These are all true facts, right? But nobody else had chattel slavery on an industrial scale, which was established with an explicit and uh, unique racial foundation, which said that the fact of your blackness is a license for us to turn you into cattle. That was a new arrangement in human history. Yeah. I could go on, if you'd like to talk about this more, about many other dimensions of why African slavery was different. But I think what I've said so far is the most fundamental thing that students need to understand. Yeah, no, thank you so much for setting the record straight on that. I think it will really help educators here teach this period of enslavement with more accuracy and, and take on some of the, the myths that are being spread. I just follow up very quickly on that uh, question about your chapter titled Capitalism's Big Jolt, where you write about the role of Africans creating European wealth and the first global commodity of sugar, um, and, which is very linked to the 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 discussion we were just having, right? And how particularly in Haiti and Barbados, that commodity uh, became so valuable. And you even talk about how Barbados's sugar export was more lucrative than all of Spain's colonies. I couldn't believe that. So um, I was just fascinated by your treatment of how African labor transformed sugarcane into the commodity of sugar. And I was wondering if you could just um, briefly say how sugar uh, helped to transform the political economy of Europe and the cultural practices, which also was fascinating to me, uh, uh, these cultural practices of modernity that are brought in with the sugar trade as well. Okay, um, so sugar, uh, the, the su sugar, uh, what should be said first is that before the 15th century, um, uh, I'm sorry, before the early 16th century, the Portuguese uh, sugar plantations and chattel slavery by the way, I call plantations prison industrial complexes. I, 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 we say shorthand, in, um, and I will probably lapse into it with you later as we continue this conversation, into saying plantation because it's a quick one-word description. But I think it's a euphemism. I think that what we're really talking about is a prison complex where people 
are deprived of their social existence and worked to death. And prison doesn't give you all of those connotations. I'm sorry, plantation doesn't give you all of those connotations, right? Anyway, these arrangements were invented and perfected in Sao Tome. In 1501, the Portuguese discovered quite by accident Brazil. Uh, Brazil and Sao Tome have pretty much the same ecological uh, and climate setup. So the Portuguese um, uh, were very quickly able to move sugar um, uh, production across the ocean into Brazil. Uh, the Portuguese were, um, they had started out being interested in gold, but sugar was green gold. Sugar cane was green gold. Sugar was the most lucrative commodity in the world economy for this, for 300 years. Nothing even remotely as profitable as sugar. Um, <clears throat> and once the Portuguese had worked out how to produce it in an efficient way using chattel in a prison industrial setting, it transits the Atlantic, and by the 1570s, Portuguese were no longer trying to turn Native Americans in Brazil into chattel. They spent several decades trying to do that. It failed for a variety of reasons. The most important, single most important one is epidemiology. The, the Native populations of Brazil didn't have resistance to European diseases, and so they died in extraordinary numbers every time the Portuguese tried to corral them into one centralized location, right? And so by the 1470s, all of Portugal's sugar production in Brazil had been Africanized, meaning uh, the, the work was being done by chattel enslaved people. Um, uh, in 1630, uh, the English took over the island of Barbados, which had been sort of neglected by the Spanish. The Spanish controlled all of the, the Caribbean that they were interested in. Uh, and I say interested in because the Caribbean's got a huge number of islands, right? Um, but the Spanish attention span was limited, right? Spain had these big pieces, places like Cuba and Hispaniola, which is where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are, and Jamaica, which are all, by the standards of the Caribbean, quite big islands, right? The Spanish really weren't didn't care about the smaller islands because the big islands were 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 were, were such a, a mouthful for them, right? And so this created an opening for the English first and then the French secondly to, to take over some of the small islands in the Eastern Caribbean, sort of as you uh, near the continental South America. And the English started first in Barbados. 1630, the English brought some Africans almost immediately. Actually, they're Africans on the first English ship that uh, arrived in Barbados. They had been captured at sea. The English attacked a Portuguese ship that had enslaved Africans on it, and the English took over those chattel and put them to work in Barbados. But in the first two decades of English experience in Barbados, which from the very start was aimed at producing sugar, um, the English tried to copy the Portuguese methods in Brazil, by but by using mostly indentured servants from England, right? Uh, and uh, they gave up on that uh, by the 1650s. Uh, they started phasing out indentured servants and bringing more and more people from Africa to the point where by 1660s, almost no white people were doing labor on sugar plantations. There's that word plantation, right? Prison complex. Uh, and it was all Africans, right? Between 1660 and the end of that century, this is the period in which I said England made more money from sugar than Spain made. You know, Spain sent 18 pizarros, 1,800 men uh, rode into the highlands of uh, the Inca Empire in South America and took over, uh, you know, con conquest. It took over um, the heartland of the Incas and stole all of their gold and silver and whatever else they could do. We all... I don't know if all is appropriate anymore, but many of us learn this in high school even now, right? And you have these fantastic visions of of incredible white uh, capacity and bravery. You know, at law, you know, you've got a band of white men and they stride in and they conquer an empire. And you also have these visions of an enormous amounts of wealth. And enormous amounts of wealth were indeed stolen. The Spanish had to invent new classes of ships called galleons which have these enormous fat bellies in order to carry off all of the loot 
that they stole from the, from the Incas and later also from the Aztecs, right? Um, <clears throat> but your question really is about the impact on Europe itself. Uh, and so I'll turn to that. Um, by the end of the century, um, sugar, the end of the 1600s, sugar, because of the enormous output of Barbados, an island that is one third the size of Long Island in New York, um, I'm sorry, uh, one third the size of Los Angeles, one sixth the size of Long Island. Uh, the English had made more money in sugar production than the Spanish had made in conquest and in looting, right? Uh, just think about that. The English bringing in and working to death large numbers of Africans to produce sugar earned more money than all of that gold and silver taken from Spain, from Mexico, and from Bolivia and Peru, right? It's, a, it's an incredible thing. That's incredible enough on the face of it. If we didn't learn anything more about this, this would already be like, okay, a stunning thing to teach high school students. There's something even more stunning, and that is what happened to Europe. Yeah. This changes everything in Europe. It changes life in Europe altogether, and here's how. So Europeans, up until that point, not because Europeans are stupid or lacking in enterprise. This isn't a, a politically correct thing I'm going to say. I'm going to drag Europeans down. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Europeans did not have hygienic sources of water most of the time for most people back in that era. Human beings, in fact, no human beings that, that I'm aware of, actually had a scientific understanding of hygiene yet. In, in other words, a theory of bacteria and things like that, right? And so the Europeans, the English, let's just stick to the English because they were the first to, 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 to tap this um, source of wealth in Barbados and, and then revolutionize their own society. The English begin to invent ways of consuming sugar-infused drinks that allow them no longer to a, have to drink insalubrious water, meaning water that's going to make you sick, or B, do what most people did in the workplace, and that is drink ale throughout the day. English people had small workshops. They didn't have factories yet. They had small-sized uh, workshops. Those were just kind of units of production for anything that, that resembled anything remotely industrial, right? Two, five, eight, ten people working together in a place. And you get thirsty, you drink ale. Tea wasn't there yet. Coffee wasn't there yet. Uh, clean water wasn't there. And so you drink ale. And, and as you can all anticipate, what happens when you begin to drink ale at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, and you're trying to work by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, if not earlier, your productivity is going to go, start going way down, right? You're drinking ale. Even if you're a disciplined person, you're not drinking to get drunk, but it's still ale, right? So in 1630, they take the English take over Barbados by 1660. Barbados is really booming, and the workforce is entirely African. And sugar is no longer the extraordinarily rare commodity that it had been historically up until that point. It has become so abundant now that it's entering the common diet, right? And it's becoming cheap and universally available. And this allows the English to begin to consume a variety of other products also produced through chattel slavery, like coffee, which change everything. So English people famously, even down, even down to this moment, they want to drink sugar in their coffee. The English are famous for that. They put milk and sugar in their coffee, right? Um, and so they're drinking coffee in the daytime, sweetened with sugar. What does this do? Not only are they not drunk, but they are also stimulated and they're getting these extra calories from the coffee. And so they're not needing to break to eat as much because they're getting extra calories. Sugar is a calorie boost. This is the jolt that I talk about in the name of this chapter. Cheap sugar, maybe not be good for you in the long run. People didn't know that until probably 50 years ago, but um, it sure does get you going, right? So you have cheap sugar and you have caffeine, and you, the worker productivity is going through the roof for the first time in European history. This is revolutionizing productivity in, in Europe. Uh, and then one other thing begins to happen. Many and, and we're going to have to we're going to have to move. To let, me close, let me just let me just close with this very quickly yeah. with this one Please other because uh, I love this story. <laughs> so the so the one other thing I have to emphasize is the invention of the coffee shop. 
Some brilliant unknown person in Oxford, England, in the year 1650, opens a coffee shop on this understanding that coffee is a stimulant and probably addictive. You put sugar in it, people will, will want to drink it. And next thing you know, boom, it's so successful, coffee shops are all over England in a very short period of time. This gives way to another entrepreneur uh, idea, right? That we've got this captive audience. It's not like a tavern. Everybody's drunk drinking ale. They're drinking, sitting around drinking coffee and with sugar in it. Their minds are stimulated. They're probably smoking tobacco, another slave-produced product, and which also reduces your appetite and stimulates you. And they're talking now very soberly about the affairs of the day. What's happening in Parliament? Did you hear about the ship that came in from Antwerp today? What, what did you? What about what? The, what's happening in the Catholic Church or between the Catholics and the Protestants? And some clever cat says, you know, I bet if I can create a bill, meaning a sheet of paper with printed news on it, word of what the discussion is today in Parliament. And, and shipping news and things like that, people in these stimulated environments will want to buy it. This is the birth of the newspaper. This is the birth of the very notion of citizenry from which democracy is built. Citizenry means, at the most basic level, an assumption that you have rights of all kinds, but per most pertinent to this conversation, a right to knowledge about what is taking place in your society, and from that flows a right to a say about what is taking place in your society. All of these things flow from the prison industrial uh, complex, from chattel slavery, from uh, the um, uh, from the um, capture of Africans by the millions for uh, to be put into these productive purposes which then place Europe on an entirely different trajectory from the rest of the world. We understand, I'm going to close, I promise. We understand these things simply as the fruits of European ingenuity. It's the scientific method. It's Judeo-Christian this or that. It's, you know, we find all of these um, uh, self-flattering um, ways of describing the origins of these things. And we leave out of the picture the most, obvious fundaments of how these things happen. These ha things happen out of the sweat and the blood of human beings from Africa. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for breaking that all down for us. Before the break, we had such rich discussion about African societies and about the impact of enslavement. I just want to follow up, uh, Howard, on a question about how we talk about enslavement. Um, because often when we're teaching students about enslavement, we focus on how, you know, slave labor was used and we talk about the stolen labor or enslaved people built this country even, but oftentimes the intellectual labor of African people is erased. And uh, we reduce Africans just to their physical attributes and not including their skills in science, including cooking and agriculture, astronomy, geography, math, carpentry, medicine, midwifery, problem solving, art, right, languages, and so much more. So you know, erasing these these references, I think, does profound damage to to our understanding of uh, world history, of African history, and it contributes to stereotyping black people today. So I was hoping you could address that. Uh, thank you, Jesse, and uh, welcome back, everyone. I, I, before I do that, I want to just say how much I appreciate all of you. Um, I come from a family of teachers, um, and I just have a the reason I accepted to do this, I'm a, I, I don't expect you to be impressed, but I am an extraordinarily overworked person. Uh, I'm overcommitted. I have too much stuff to do already by a factor of whatever. Um, but I couldn't say no to you guys because I know how important what you do is. Um, and I can feel the spirit in just the little exchange of comments I heard just now. And, and it's really beautiful. Um, so thank you. Um, on... Uh, your question, Jesse, um, I, I want to be really careful. 
you said what you said uh, probably better than I could say it. You listed all these domains in which people of uh, Africans and people of African descent <clears throat> made um, contributions that stemmed from sophisticated thought processes. And this aspect of African life and of African diasporic life is systematically stripped from the record or from the emphasis of uh, 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 the thrust of how we teach and learn history, right? Um, That's right. And I believe that profoundly. I completely agree with you. But I also think that uh, there is no reason, uh, I don't think you were suggesting this, but I want to be careful to insist that we should never minimize or feel bad about the fact that blood, sweat, and tears, physical labor, physical hardship, being worked as animals actually constituted the motor of development that created the wealth of, that created the West and the wealth of the West. I, I, no doubt. It doesn't mean you were stupid. It doesn't strip away all those other things. I just want to make sure that politically, I don't feel the need to say, well, okay, it wasn't just this, it wasn't just that. It's true, it wasn't just this, it wasn't that. But even if it was just that. Right, right. This I is like you. I hear you. the Himalayas. This is like the biggest thing you can think of already, right? Now to your question, right? Um, we started this conversation, how do you get, how did, you know, they were hell-bent on getting to Asia. Well, they eventually got to Asia because they had a black navigator that they got from the Swahili coast of Mozambique who already knew the trade routes to India. That's how they figured out how to get to India, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. They figured out how to, to produce sugar uh, in Brazil because of Africans demonstrating from the uh, African captives, demonstrating from specialized knowledge that they had gained in their own lives in their indigenous cultures about soils, about irrigation, about um, planting, uh, timing of, 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 of uh, planting and harvesting tropical crops. They had not grown commercial sugar before, but they had a lot of carefully um, built up knowledge accumulated over time that made them indispensable as knowledge workers. And I talk about in my book, the fact that, you know, it takes three, four decades before, or four or five decades before Africans totally displace Native Americans in Brazil as the workforce in the, in the, in the prison industrial labor complexes, right? <clears throat> but in the early decades, the African, African workers were a very small minority being used by the Portuguese, and they were almost exclusively being used in knowledge roles. They were specialists in various things. You can go from one place to another, okay? Um, South Carolina, when South Carolina or the Carolinas initially, one place, were formed as a colony, what did South Carolina, or I'm sorry, their first incarnation, it was just called Carolina, what did they subsist on? What was the nature of their economy? It was a rice-growing economy. They figured, the white people in a plantation economy figured out how to grow rice in a profitable way because of the agricultural science that the people from a specific part of Africa had developed to a very high degree. So the specific part of Africa we're talking about is modern day Guinea and Guinea-Bissau. The white people who were looking for slaves to grow sugar were deliberately sourcing slaves for rice agriculture there because the, those, the people from those cultures knew vastly more about rice cultivation than white people did in this time. You can go for one domain after this story is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's in yep. every page and every chapter, right? For real. But where I started here is just like, and, and again, you're not doing this, but nobody needs to apologize for saying like, yeah, our labor was like, this is the thing that made all of this stuff happen and all of this stuff work. That's what happened. That's a fact. Yeah. And no, it's never no. been adequately recognized. And so I'm not going to let go of that, right? No, thank you for centering that and framing it that way. And also just when we were talking about contributions that African people made, uh, uh, including their labor, but beyond, 
my jaw just dropped when I was reading your book and I discovered that we both had something in common that that we became blues fanatics in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started playing jazz and blues organ and then then harmonica. Uh, and, and we both idolized Jimi Hendrix, who actually went to my high school, Garfield High School in Seattle and where where I teach as well, where I've taught for over a decade. And I love how you describe the significance, the art form of the blues and jazz and the significance of its origins in, in, in Africa. And you describe how you deepened your appreciation for the blues on your, your trip to Mississippi and the Mississippi Delta region. And, you know, I'm going to Mississippi for the first time at the end of the month to, to see the plantation or better put, as you say, the prison industrial uh, complex where my family was enslaved. And I'm going to to see that place and to learn about the blues. And I just love that you included that that artistic contributions uh, of African peoples as well. Thank you. Um, listen, this is a, a statement that the politically correct people uh, will have a problem with, right? But it is not only Africans and the people who descend from Africans that we call African-Americans, but to a very, very large extent, it is the culture of those people that make Americans American. That's where America came from, that's, uh, culturally speaking. That's a, an enormous part of, a disproportionately large part of why Americans are different from English people or from other Europeans. There's a quote in the book. Uh, if you look in the index, excuse me, I'm not going to mangle it. She said it better. She said everything better than I could ever say it. But Toni Morrison talks about how you have the the food and you have the pot. African-Americans were the pot that made the dish of American culture. Look up the quote itself. Um, We are the cauldron out of which uh, all of this stuff, culturally speaking, emerged. So this is another leaf. And you said, what about the intellectual contribution? Okay, now we're on to the cultural side. There's no American culture without African-Americans. It's not even imaginable. That's how absolute we're talking. It's not even imaginable. Um, uh, Americans who have no African ancestry and who never think about Africa, who are not even aware of Africa, or of this cultural conversation are themselves all profoundly shaped by Africa and by the cultural input of those of us who descend from Africa. This is what makes America, America. So the blues is kind of a cornerstone in that because of the particular history of the blues, where it emerges from work songs, the field, you know, the Mississippi Valley uh, at a time when cotton uh, supplant, supplants sugar as the most important commodity in the world and becomes not the engine of Europe's takeoff and divergence from Asia in terms of wealth, but America's takeoff and divergence from Europe in terms of wealth. That happens all there. And blues is the substrate. It's the language, musically speaking and verbally, that people of African descent are, are developing as a way of communicating explicitly to each other and and in a, a mode of subversion, right? We, we have a language where we can talk in <laughs> idiom and metaphor where it's not necessarily going to be understood in the way that we understand it. And we can have our privacy even in public that way. This is how blues comes about. Beautiful. You know, you got me hyped to get down there now. I'm going to be on the phone with my dad after this, telling him how excited I am to go and and join him down there. So thank you for that. I just wanted to end by, by thanking you for writing this book and it just, it, it it's demonstrates so clearly that you spent years of your life researching and writing this extraordinary telling of African history and its role in making the modern world. 
And in and reading your book, it appeared it really appeared to me that the immense labor you put into reinterpreting Africans' role in world history is both an intellectual pursuit, right, of striving to get the narrative right that's been that's been horribly mangled by Eurocentric uh, narratives. But but it also it appeared to be a deeply personal pursuit as well. And and I just wanted to appreciate the way you connect the history you write about to your own life uh, and the significance you tell about your family story. And I thought maybe you could just tell us about your enslaved ancestor in Virginia and your connection to Ghana and West Africa in the last two minutes. Sure. Thank you. Um, so. My parents, both of whom have passed, uh, both descended from slavery. Um, but the story I tell is of my mother's uh, maternal family. <clears throat> and so my, I'm sorry, I'm, that's wrong. And my, mother, my mother's paternal family. <clears throat> and the, the particular story, I, I try not to. This, this was a, I had a debate in my mind. Um, this. You know, I cover 600 years of history in this book and and four continents and the entire world of the Atlantic. And there's a lot. Right. Um, uh, and as I grew up knowing the story I'm about to share with you, uh, and I knew that this story was uh, how important this story, the story I'm going to share with you was to enlivening me to this subject and to making me want to know more and to giving me the strength to pursue the research that I pursued. But. I was also wary about, okay, I've got 600 years here and all of this ground to cover. I don't want to, I, I don't want to turn this into a book that is in any way self-indulgent or about me, right? Um, and so it really doesn't come up, the, the Virginia story doesn't really come up until almost the end of the book. And the story in a nutshell is this, that my grandmother's grandmother <clears throat> was purchased by the governor of Virginia, uh, a man named James Barber, who was a friend, a close friend of Thomas Jefferson's, uh, and who eventually um, uh, occupied uh, uh, very high posts in the government of uh, Thomas Jefferson and subsequent uh, administrations. He was Minister of War, he was Secretary of State, his brother not my immediate blood relative, but the brother of my immediate blood relative was the Supreme Court justice on the Dred Scott decision case court. Um, anyway, uh, this grandmother's grandmother was purchased off the boat from Africa uh, by James Barber, and James Barber took a liking to her. James Barber did not write a diary that has been passed down across generations for us to know what he was thinking, but we know for sure that he had children by her who became my ancestors. Uh, and we can only imagine the contours of their quote unquote relationship. Um, uh, we don't, can't really know for sure. Um, you know, I think the the default has to be in when you're talking about an enslaved person, a woman, um, that she is not really in a position actually to give consent um, under those circumstances, but we simply don't really know all the facts, right? Anyway, um, uh, she bore this man two sons. Uh, one of them is my direct ancestor and the other one is a great, 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 whatever uncle, right? Um, and she extracted from him, James Barber, a promise that he would take care of his her sons in his will. And in fact, before he died, well before he died, he also uh, took, after a fashion, a liking to these two young men. And in an era when it was literally illegal to do so, he allowed these black young men to go to to have a school education to learn how to read and to write and to develop a trade and one of them became a shoemaker and the other one became uh, a um uh, 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 an iron worker okay so james barber leaves them in his will then he dies and james barber's white children go to court to ex excise them from his will to cut him out of 
their uh, inheritance, which was intended to be a not insignificant amount of property from the very large estate of James, that James Barber left. Um, and these two men, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather and his brother, made it their life mission then to uh, not to slink away in defeat, but to save money and to work hard and to little by little cobble together whatever parcels of property they could from that vast domain by purchasing what was their birthright uh, and passing it on to their children. And that land, what remains of that land, is still in my family. And as wow. a, I grew up spending time at, uh, as a child and hearing these stories and being aware in this extremely personal way about what slavery was, what it meant, what it did to people, what how it shaped me, um, how, you know, this was just everywhere in my, I, I, I'm actually blessed to have had, uh, you know, we don't choose who our ancestors were, and that's not what I'm talking about, but blessed to, by way of this experience, to have had parents who talked to me and my siblings at, at a very young age about all of these things in, with, in their full complexity and in a sophisticated yeah. way. And so that is wow. one of the most important germs, if you will, of, of this book, even Thank though you. I don't spend a lot of pages talking about it. No, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing that story and, and for enlightening us all. Everybody should pick up the book uh, make sure this is the cornerstone uh, of your, your teaching of African and world history, Born in Blackness. Thank you so much, Howard French, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. Music provided by The Blue Tide, a Seattle-based acoustic blues duo of Daniel Rapport and J.D. Lenore, a.k.a. Jesse Hagopian. You can find them on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your music.